right, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Revelation chapter 14 is where you need to turn. I hope you have your Bible. Find one close to you. The very first thing I need to do today is apologize. I made a mistake last weekend, and I need to correct it today. I realized this mistake on Sunday evening. After making the mistake in both services, and man, I really hammered it on it in the 1045 service um, last, last weekend. I referred to the dragon as the one standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. That was not the dragon. That was the strong angel back in chapter 10. At the beginning of chapter 13, when the dragon calls the beast out of the sea, the text says that he is standing on the sand of the sea. So that's the mistake. Not one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. It doesn't say it three times. It just says it one time that he is standing on the sand of the sea. So my bad. Details matter. I want to clear that up. The good news is, though, the proper thing, the actual way it's worded, actually makes my point in a better way. In the text last week, we saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion, solid, steady, eternal, standing on Mount Zion. The dragon, on the other hand, stands on a sandy beach, which is not a great place to stand if you want to stand firm. So other than my mistake last week, we saw a brighter picture than we've been engaging over the last few weeks in Revelation. Once again, it was the lamb who was the focus of our attention, and we want, like John, to see the lamb, to behold the lamb, And we want to be aligned with the Lamb. We want to stand with Him as part of that 144,000 who sing in celebration of His great work of redemption. And we also want to live as those people are described in the text. They're described as purchased and pure. They're described as following the Lamb everywhere He goes. They're described as first fruits. They're described as those who tell the truth and are blameless. That's what His people look like. And so the question last week, the question every week is, are you his? And that question will continue to hang over us today, even as we move on in the text. Today, we're going to see a lot. And we could get really lost if we choose to chase any one little detail in the text this week too far. So we're going to stay at a pretty high altitude today and try to take in all of this as one shot. In fact, it may be helpful to zoom out even more than the text that we're going to look at today, verses 6 through 20 of chapter 14, and and include last week's text and this week's text. Last week's text, actually, and next week's text in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. I say this because many scholars observe a type of parallelism called a chiasm in this broader section of Revelation. So in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, what we saw last week, and chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, what we'll see next week, Those are both songs of celebration, songs of celebration over the work of the Lord. And then what we'll see in the text today is first some angels who make some announcements, and then a little bit later on in the text, in verses 14 to 20, we will see the completion of that announced work. And then right in the middle, there is this business of the perseverance of the saints and the promise of rest. Chiastic parallelism parallelism is structured like this, A. B, C, C, B, A. All right, so we got the, we've got the songs of celebration, we've got the work, and then we've got this great statement of perseverance and promise. And usually when there's a chiastic parallelism, the point is to emphasize the thing in the middle, the very center of it all, which in our text today is going to be this lesson about the perseverance of the saints and the promise of rest for the people of God. And so when we get to that, we will not want to miss that part today. And it would be easy to miss. 
it would be easy to miss because that doesn't seem as interesting to us as all this business about the angels who fly around and the things that they say about the promise of salvation and the, and the threat of coming judgment. So let's look at it in the text today. We're going to cover all the way from 6 through 20, the rest of chapter 14. Listen to God's word. It says, And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an, an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Verse 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to a horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we still want to see the lamb. We still want to sing of redemption, and we long for rest, for deliverance, for full and final victory. Until then, we pray that you will empower us toward perseverance, obedience, and faith. Use this text today to do that. And use this text also to ignite in us, in us a passionate desire to preach the good news to our neighbors and to the nations. Give us a sense of urgency as we do this, knowing that a day of reckoning is coming. Judgment is certain and eternal. Teach us that heaven is real, and so is hell. And make us instruments, useful instruments in your hands, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's probably best for us to break today's text into three parts. We'll see these three angels who proclaim in verses 6 through 11. Then we'll see that call to endurance and the promise of rest, which is the main part in verses 12 and 13. And then we'll see the harvest that is coming in verses 14 to 16. So let's talk about these three angels who proclaim at first in verses 6, six through 11. First, we meet the first angel. 
he flies in midheaven, the text says. Midheaven is the highest point in the sky, a point that is visible to the whole world. The text says that he preaches to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. The text says that he does this with a loud voice. In other words, what we see in the proclamation of this first angel is a fullness to his proclamation, a globalness to his proclamation, if you will. And we see in the text that he preaches an eternal gospel, inviting the world to fear God, to give him glory, and to worship him. He mentions, this first angel does, the coming day of judgment, but that is obviously not the main theme of his preaching. His is a message of salvation. And there are two things that I want us to highlight in this first angel. First, we keep seeing this kind of stuff in Revelation. As judgment is threatened, as the day of reckoning approaches, God is constantly giving people an opportunity and an invitation to repent and be saved. He's always been doing this, in fact. In fact, that's one of the hallmarks of prophecy, specifically prophecy of judgment to come. The purpose of prophecy of judgment to come is to turn people around, to turn them to faith. And maybe that's what you need today. You need to hear this angel calling for faith and repentance. You need to hear the promise of an eternal gospel. You need to hear the call to fear God and worship him, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that texts like this exist. Second, I want us to be sure not to leave this angel alone in this work. In fact, the work that the angel is doing is the work that we have been called to do, to proclaim the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the whole world. We are called to do this with our neighbors and with the nations. Some preachers say that this text is the fulfillment of the condition, the biblical condition, that this gospel be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. Listen, if you take this passage as somehow an excuse for you not to preach the gospel because that angel will someday, you will be living in rebellion and disobedience to the Lord. Rather, let's be like this angel. Let's be like this first angel and find a really high spot and tell the world that Jesus saves. Tell the world that Christ alone can save. Let's be like that angel, the first angel. Look at angel number two. His message is not so bright. It's not so hopeful. He declares the demise of Babylon the Great. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And he does this in a way as if it has already happened though it is, in fact, yet to come. And this is a literary device that is intended to reinforce the certainty of Babylon's demise. He speaks of it as if it's in the past tense, even though it still lies in the future, because it is so certain. So certain is the destruction of Babylon that he can speak about it as if it has already happened. But probably the big question in this text is not when is this going to take place, but who is Babylon? Or what is Babylon? I think Daryl Johnson answers that question well when he says, By the first century, Babylon has become a kind of code word for humanity living in rebellion against God. Humanity living in rebellion against God. Any nation or any city that rejected the living God as the center of its life and asserted its own ways was, for the biblical authors, Babylon. And this is rich in Old Testament background. It goes all the way back to Genesis and the Tower of Babel where men tried to prove, man tried to prove his own worth by building this tower to heaven. My favorite part of that whole account is when the text says that God had to come down to inspect what they had done. 
he had to come down to even see what they had accomplished. Uh, the, the Sunday school lesson, I think, this week has a reference to that and says he had to put his cheek to the ground to even see what they had accomplished. Man, in his self-salvation project, tried to build a tower up to God, and it didn't work out so well for them. That was an early display of our self-centeredness, our pride, and our arrogance, as if we did not need God. Then there is the Babylonian Empire that causes all kinds of trouble for God's people throughout the Old Testament, conquering them and even taking them away into captivity. When John's original audience read about Babylon, they probably would have thought as of Rome as the current manifestation of Babylon, this empire that is completely man-centered, completely idolatrous, completely against God, they probably would have thought of Rome. Maybe we need to spend some time thinking of what, what is Babylon today? What, what is that worldly empire that is completely man-centered, completely selfish, completely idolatrous? What is Babylon today? Here's the point. Babylon equals a worldly system that is opposed to God. It is the essence of man-centeredness, of selfishness, idolatry, and immorality. And what we learn in this text is that Babylon doesn't last. Babylon has fallen. That is certain. The kingdoms of this world will not last. So you better make sure that you have citizenship in an eternal kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Every earthly kingdom will fall. Maybe you need to hear today that America is not eternal. Your blue passport will get you into a lot of places, but it will not get you into heaven. Only trusting in Jesus Christ will. Every earthly kingdom will fall. So make sure you belong to an eternal kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This probably is the basis of why people should heed the first angel's call to repentance and faith. Because Babylon has fallen. The kingdoms of this world have fallen, will fall, and so we must put our trust in the eternal king and his eternal kingdom. Angel number three only makes it worse. This angel declares the eternal judgment that is coming to those who worship the beast and who take his mark. He uses this graphic imagery of the cup of God's wrath, his anger. He uses the imagery of torment in fire and brimstone, of smoke rising up forever and ever, and there is no rest. Let me remind you of this quote that I shared last week from Warren Wiersbe when he said, better to reign with Christ forever than to reign with Antichrist for a few years. Better to worship the lamb who redeems and rewards than the beast who deceives and destroys. One of the things we learn from this text is that taking that mark and worshiping the beast, it may serve you well for a time. It may allow you to buy and sell on this earth. But in the end, in eternity even, it sets you at odds with God and seals you for wrath and judgment. Now, if we had more time today, we would dig into some of these images. They are terrifying and terrible. I mean, just look at it again and see if this is not a picture of hell itself. Smoke and fire and brimstone rising up forever and ever. The full measure of the wrath of God, unmixed, undiluted wrath of God being poured out, drank up by those who refuse him, by those who oppose him. It is terrifying. Grant Osborne drives this home when he says, this may seem overly harsh to us, but we must remember that the destruction of both evil and the wicked who live for it is necessary for a holy God. When all the saints see the full effects of evil, they will rejoice at its annihilation from the world. 
But that rejoicing in the annihilation of evil is not the only thing that this text should stir in us. It should also wake us up to the realities of idolatry and rebellion. That dragon and the beasts are subtle in the way they lead people to walk the way of Babylon. This text should wake us up to the realities of idolatry and rebellion. And it should break our hearts over the reality of eternal judgment. When we think about men and women and boys and girls who have refused to trust in Jesus Christ, suffering this judgment for eternity, our hearts should break. In fact, when we think about this in the context of people we know and love, who are outside of Christ, who are not trusting in Christ, when we think that this is what awaits them, our hearts should be broken and we should be fired up to preach the good news to folks who are on this track. We should be fired up to preach the good news to people who are on this track because we know that we were once on that track. We know that we were once headed toward this kind of destruction, this kind of wrath, this kind of judgment. And praise God, someone preached the good news to us, right? And praise God, he worked in our hearts and made us alive together with Christ. This should fire us up to be doing that same thing, to be preaching the good news to folks who desperately need it. Now, before we move on from these three angels, let me once again just reiterate God's graciousness in all of this. Not just in that first angel who preaches an eternal gospel, an eternal good news, but even these two angels who promise destruction to come. There is grace from God in all of this. Whether they are declaring salvation or whether they are declaring impending judgment, they are giving the world an opportunity to repent before it's too late. And we see this throughout Revelation. An opportunity to repent before it's too late. Will they? Maybe, maybe that's not the main question. It's not will they. Maybe the main question is will you? Will you repent? Will you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ before it's too late? Look at verse 12 and 13. This is that middle section that seems to be the heart of it all. This is the call to, repent, call to endurance and the promise of rest. Look at verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow after them. This is the heart of the matter. All of this that we've looked at so far and all of what is to come leads to a call for the perseverance of the saints. That is the seventh time that phrase has come up specifically in the book so far. It seems to be a major theme in Revelation that in the face of persecution, in light of coming judgment, in the hope of eternal life, we are called to press on. We are called not to give up. We are called not to compromise. We are called to finish the race, to keep the faith. We have learned already today that this world will not last. All of these kingdoms of the world will fall. The dragon loses, and all who follow him will be judged. But the lamb stands on Zion. He rules forever. He reigns forever, and his people stand with him eternally. So rejoice, Christians. Stand firm. This book has been calling us to endurance from the very beginning. In fact, we have tried to hang this banner over our entire study. Revelation gives us a vision of Jesus that inspires and empowers faithful endurance through difficulty, through suffering, through persecution, unto certain and eternal victory in Christ. We've tried to see in Revelation awestruck wonder 
that leads to faithful endurance. And this is the call. Right here in the middle of this text, the focus of the text is a call to faithful endurance. We can live well. We can even die well. Look at it in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. I am totally convinced and have been for a few days now that some of you are here this morning just to hear that. In your grief and in your sorrow over recent loss or loss from long ago, this is what you need to hear today. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. What a transforming truth that is, right? And one that is found throughout the Bible. One that we need to be reminded of today. Look at this same truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Those who are in Christ, those who die in Christ, when they are absent from the body, they're at home with the Lord. That helps us live, right? And that helps us die. That helps us die faithfully. Philippians 1, Paul talks about this experience personally, this hope, this courage personally. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now, I like that phrase, very much better. <laughs> to, to depart and be with Christ, very much better. And that changes the way we live, and that changes the way we die in the Lord. Psalm 116 expresses this truth poetically when it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. This text that we're reading here says you are blessed if you die in the Lord. You are blessed if you die in the Lord. The question is, are you in the Lord? If so, you can look death in the face with courage. Courage is not the, the absence of fear, right? But you can look, look at death with courage if you are in the Lord. If you are not, be afraid. Because death is just the beginning of your trouble. If you're not in the Lord, physical death is just the beginning of the trouble. And so I would invite you again to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and find hope for eternal life in him and him alone. You're blessed if you die in the Lord. My favorite part of this passage, though, is at the end of verse 13, when the Spirit finally speaks. The Spirit hasn't said a word so far. The Holy Spirit hasn't said a word so far in Revelation. We've had a lot of characters saying a lot of different things, right? We've got all these creatures and all these, all these angels and all these things that have been singing and speaking, but the Spirit up to this point has been silent. But when this voice says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on, the Spirit can no longer contain himself, and he says, yes, that is right. Don't you love that? The Spirit finally speaks up and he says, yes, that is right. They have rest that is coming. Those who die in the Lord have eternal rest to look forward to. Man, I, I, know, I know in many of your eyes I'm not old at all. I'm a young man. In my own eyes, I feel like I'm getting older. And I look forward to rest. I need 
rest. And man, I am looking forward to eternal rest. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews talks about this rest, starting in verse 8. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. There is a promised rest for the people of God. Be diligent to enter that rest. Be diligent to endure with faith and obedience unto the end and enter that rest, that eternal rest. So in light of all of this, we persevere. We're called to persevere. We're called to obey. We're called to keep the faith. And when we die, it is a blessing. I'm telling you that changes the way you live. And it will certainly change the way you die. We have watched some people here from this body die like this. With faith and trust and courage and hope and joy even at the prospect of promised rest that is just around the corner. It changes the way we live and it changes the way we die. This is an encouragement to us. Then verse 14 to 16 gets back to the parallel with what the angels declared. So the angels said a bunch of stuff in the first part of our text today, and now that stuff is going to happen in verse 14 to 16. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, read commentary about this particular text and there are a bunch of different perspectives. I think it is best for us to see these two harvests as contrast to one another like flip sides of the same coin maybe even, but they're quite different from one another. The first harvest that seems to be completed by the Lord Jesus himself, like a son of man with a golden crown on his head, riding on a cloud, sounds like Jesus to me, is likened to a grain harvest. And I would say that this first harvest is a harvest of believers unto life eternal. And the Lord is bringing in the fruit from his fields. This, in other words, is the fulfillment of the promise of salvation for his people. Jesus speaks similarly of a harvest in Matthew chapter 13. Look at this. It says, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Ask yourself why he did that. Why did that man sow good seed into his field? He wants a harvest, right? Read on, it says, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed into your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. 
The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in time, in the time of the harvest, I will send out the reapers and say to them, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now sometimes we read all of that parable and we think the focus is on the tares that are going to be burned up. But what we need to know is that's just a side note. The farmer is not interested in the tares. He planted wheat in order to harvest wheat, right? And even though the enemy came and, and sowed some weed into his fields, he's still interested in gathering up the wheat, right? He's going to gather it all up, and the tares are going to be burned up, but he is interested in bringing in the harvest of wheat. It's the same idea here in Revelation chapter 14. The Son of Man puts in his sickle not to bring about judgment, but to bring in the produce of his field that he planted, to bring in the harvest of the nations unto himself, to bring in his faithful ones unto eternal life. It's a positive example of the harvest. That's what's happening here in this harvest. That farmer isn't interested in tares. His main purpose is not to burn them up. His goal, when he planted the field, was to harvest the wheat, which he will do. He'll bring them into the barn. But this second harvest is done by an angel, not by the Lord. And it's likened to a grape harvest. But the grapes are thrown into the press of the wrath of God. Like up to that point, it seems fairly positive, right? Oh, we got a sickle, we're going to bring in the grapes. Until he says that they throw them into the winepress of the wrath of God. I would say that this is the harvest of unbelievers unto eternal wrath that the second angels and the third, the second and third angels spoke of. This is where the Lord brings in his enemies and crushes them until their blood is neck deep over the whole expanse of the land of Israel. The tone of that harvest is way different. This angel is referred to as the one who has the power over fire. And we saw fire in the first section, did we not? Fire and smoke and brimstone that constantly is rising up from their destruction. This angel has power over the fire. This takes place outside the city. That is ominous language. That's where unclean things are put. That's where the Lord Jesus died outside the city. This business of crushing grapes as the wrath of God is Old Testament paint from Joel chapter 3. So when we put these two things together, the harvest of grain and the harvest of grapes, when we put them together, what we see is that there is a day of harvest coming. And on that day, his people who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus will be brought in as a harvest of wheat. The rest who do not believe, who have given themselves over to the beast and the dragon and to Babylon will be gathered in and crushed by the righteous wrath of God. There's no middle ground. You're either wheat that is brought into the barn as a harvest, or you're grapes that are crushed and blood spews out all over the place. That language is, is so grotesque. Up to a horse's bridle, that's about four feet, and the entire, the entire landmass of Israel proper is the picture there. 200 miles, four feet deep, blood from the wrath of God against his enemies. There's no middle ground. It's heaven or hell. Charles Spurgeon, in talking about this text, called people to a response at the end of his message. And he said this in a way that only Spurgeon can. I beseech you, do not risk that doom for yourselves. Escape for your lives 
Look not behind you, but fly to the only refuge which God has provided. Whoever will entrust his soul to Jesus Christ shall be eternally saved. Look unto him who wore the thorn crown and repose your soul's entire confidence in him. And then in that last great day, you shall see him seated on the white cloud wearing a golden crown and you shall be gathered. But if you reject him, do not think it wrong that you should be cast with the grapes into the winepress of the wrath of God and be trodden with the rest of the clusters of the vine of the earth. I beg you, take Christ as your savior. This very hour, lest this night you should die unsaved. Lay hold of Jesus, lest you never hear another gospel invitation or warning. If I have seemed to speak terribly, God knoweth that I have done it out of love for your souls. And believe me, that I do not speak as strongly as the truth might well permit me to do. For there is something far more terrible about the doom of the lost than language can ever express or thought conceive. God save all of you from ever suffering that doom, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. It's heaven or hell. There is no middle ground. When we think about this text, we recognize that there is good news for the whole world. Good news for the whole world. That was the declaration when Jesus was born. Good news of great joy for all men. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Good news for the whole world. And that good news includes the declaration that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. But salvation is available. So repent and believe. Trust in Jesus Christ today while there is time. Repent and believe today while there is time. It's good news. I hope it will be good news to you. Number two, be encouraged to endure with faith and obedience. Be encouraged by this text. That's where, that's where the point of the parallelism is. It's about endurance. It's about faithful endurance and hope for eternal life. Hold fast to that hope. Even when Babylon seems to win, even when the dragon seems to prevail, even when the beast seems to rule, you hold on to Christ knowing that he stands on Zion and those who love him stand with him forever and ever. Persevere and endure, die even in the faith. Because number three, death is not defeat for those who are in Christ. Death is not defeat for God's people. It is a real enemy, I don't want to deny that. And we do and should mourn when people die, even believers. Even when believers die, we should mourn. But we must recognize that though death is an enemy, it is a defeated enemy because of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. And therefore, even in the face of death, we can rejoice. Even in the face of death, because of Jesus' resurrection, we can face it with courage and confidence and even joy. I, I want to I be like that. As I suffer, as I die, I want to say, it's much better, it's much more better to go to be with him. But you can only face it that way if you know Jesus. So the question is, do you? Do you know Jesus like that? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, no better day to do that than today. No better opportunity to do that than today. Like Spurgeon says, 
Who knows? This may be the last day for you. Repent and believe. Stand together and pray. Father, we thank you for good news. Good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And I want to pray first for men and women, boys and girls, who are lost, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior, who are headed toward eternal judgment fire and brimstone, full cup, full measure, unmixed of your wrath. Only you can rescue them. Only you can redeem them. Only you can save them. So I pray that you would. You would open their eyes to your holiness and their sinfulness. Open their eyes to the sacrifice of Christ in their place. Give them faith to believe repentance to turn and save them like you did us we were on that track too and you reached down and changed everything and I pray that you'll do that today for the eternal good of those people and for the eternal glory of your name I pray for your people that we would be stirred up to proclamation, that we would be like that first angel, find a high spot and tell the world about the Lord Jesus Christ, invite them to repent and believe. Pray that you would encourage us to endure with faith and obedience, to hold fast. And God, I pray that you'd give us courage in the face of death, that you would root down deep in us. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. That we would not fear because we know, we know that we live forever with you. Give us courage, we pray in Christ's name.